Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking with Eric Assam about closure commons and closure.data.json. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you. It's an honor to be here, and especially since it's been such a long time since the last episode. Yeah, it's been quite a year, I think, for everybody, and not just me in particular. Yeah, and some of the reasons why I'm here right now is that I sent you an email, I think almost a year ago, or at least half a year ago, where I was wondering what was happening to the REPL podcast. And I was sort of suggesting to do an interview of you to figure out who is Daniel Compton and what's he been up to since he hasn't done the podcast for quite some time. So yeah, what have you been up to? And first of all, maybe where did you come into closure? I came into closure a few years ago now. I was working at a consultancy doing Microsoft enterprise resource planning ERP systems, which is warehousing, finance, shipping, logistics, all of the kind of things that go into running a like physical goods business. And at the time, we had these enormous great big databases of transactions or that enormous 100 gigs or 200 gigs, maybe, but you know, enough to be unwieldy to handle nimbly. Anyway, and I remember watching a talk from Richicky about Datomic and seeing Datomic, the promise of being able to time travel was something that I thought would be really great because we had these great big databases where people would change fields in the, say, the item description and you wouldn't notice what happened and maybe it was an accidental change and it would only be you know, a month later when you were looking at something else and you realized, oh, that's wrong or they've changed these numbers in ways which they shouldn't have been changed. And so being able to get a full audit log history of every change and who made it and all of those things seemed like something which would be amazing to have and something that I yeah, could see was, was never going to happen in the system that we had. That was my introduction to Clojure. I'd seen Datomic. I thought, oh, there's some good ideas in this Datomic database. Maybe I should look at the programming language that written as well. And then just got more and more interest in closure, ended up leaving that job as a consultant as a consultant and going to do independent consulting. I did some closure work for a few companies and then did long stretch about four years or so with day eight in Australia, working on reframe, reframe 10x and the internal applications that they built. And then joined a startup, the Falcon Project, which was a really cool time. Sadly, we, we didn't manage to get funding, and so that shut down probably around about the time of the last podcast, more or less, maybe slightly before, early 2020. And then I joined GitHub a couple of a couple of months after that. I joined as a product manager. Previously, I'd been doing software development through you know, my whole career, but I wasn't able to get a software development job at GitHub locations and remote working and that kind of stuff. But there was a product manager job open to me. So I thought about it for a bit and I, well, I like to do product management. I didn't really know for sure, but it was, I think it might've been like April, 2020, which was probably one of the worst, worst times to be trying to get a job in recent memory, because at that time, pretty much all companies had frozen hiring because this was COVID had sort of just hit and no one really knew 
quite what was going to happen to the economy. So they had hiring freezes on, but GitHub didn't. I was wondering if I could ask you a couple of things there, because I imagine that quite a few people have been in the situation that you were in at the ERP shop, yeah, where you see, you discover Datomic, you discover Clojure, and you figure out that, hey, this is the technology that I want to work with. And did you get introduced Datomic there or Clojure? And, and if <laughs> no. so... No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, um, you know, the whole company was sort of a Microsoft-focused consulting company, and the ERP system that we were selling is pre-built from Microsoft. It comes, you get a source code license, and then you can customize it. But, you know, it's one thing to customize an existing system and another to build an entirely new ERP system from yeah. scratch. So, yeah, um, sadly, no. Because we're also at Ardoc, where I work, where we do closure on the back end, and mm -hmm. we're looking into changing our database from Mongo to something. Mm -hmm. And for the longest time, I've sort of felt that Postgres would be the safe bet, right? Mm -hmm. Because so almost like nobody got fired for choosing Postgres. <laughs> yeah. But maybe Datomic would be the good bet or the, the fun bet. <laughs> and that's an interesting debate I'm sort of having with myself and a couple of colleagues. And I guess we're soon going to have to take that to management as well, right? To present the case. Yeah. My recommendation there would be to talk to some companies who've used Datomic mm -hmm. in production. Because I know, you know, it's, you know, there's certain cases like, say, storing large strings in Datomic can cause problems down the track. So maybe somewhat use case dependent and. If you ever want non-closure stuff to talk to it, maybe that's a bit more challenging than, say, with Postgres. But yeah, definitely an option. There's quite a few devs out there who's sort of sitting in the same, you want closure, but you can't have it at your day job, or you're going to have to make an argument for it and stuff. That's uh... Yeah, you know, I was pretty junior at the time, and there wasn't really an option where I was then, but I did start doing some open source work in Clojure. I think around about that time, I don't know if I got the sequencing exactly correct, but yeah, I think I must have been writing Clojure personally before I started doing it professionally. So open source can be, if you have the time available, that's a good place to get the experience. If your company's open to, to adding in Clojure, then that's a great position to be in if you can, but sometimes it's just not really feasible. On my journey, I discovered Clojure a little bit through Rich's talks, but my sort of main inspiration there was Uldir Stokke, who had a talk where she basically made a CRUD application with UI and everything in less than mm -hmm. 100 lines of Clojure, templating and all of it. And at the time, I was working in Java with Spring, and you, you couldn't <laughs> <achieve> any, anything. <laughs> yeah. In less than 1,000 lines of code, that was just set up, right? So yeah. I was fortunate then to be given a, a side project on at work ah. where I was able to, where I was allowed to choose my own tech and I chose Clojure and that's the rest of that story. Was that at Adoc? No, that was at a couple of companies ago, but then I quit there because I wanted to bring Clojure into that company, but it's not like the safe bet, right? You have to sort of convince more or less all the devs. And if someone does not want, there's always going to be, oh, this doesn't work, or that's difficult, or I want to do it this way. So 
I find that it's really hard to convince devs of changing their favorite language, which, of course, I am now also guilty of because I, I'm not changing <laughs> anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Can be tricky for sure. So how was uh, life as a product manager? Because the reason I'm asking this is that as I'm becoming more and more senior, I find myself sort of pulled a little bit into the product manager role because you have, you've been around for a while, you've seen a lot of things and maybe you've acquired some tastes in what is a good UI, what is a good application, what are the things that annoy you? How was it working as a product manager at GitHub? Yeah, so this was my first job as a product manager. So it's hard to say how much to compare with other product management roles at other companies to say what was product management as a job and what was GitHub's unique flavor of it. I have a lot more respect for, not that I didn't respect the job before, but after doing it, I now understand kind of the challenge of of product management, of balancing these different stakeholders and putting there's, I'm not sure if I'll be able to put into words, but there's something about needing to think really hard about trade-offs in what you're deciding to do and create a consistent, whatever you do, you know, needs to be consistent across within your own product and then across the, you know, ideally across the company. And that's something that you know, is very challenging. It can sometimes look from the outside, you look at the product manager, you're a software developer, working around the product manager kind of just comes in with these great ideas. But having sat on the other side of the table, it's really challenging. And I enjoyed it. I think I did you know, some parts of the job. I did well. Some parts I you know, just wasn't that well suited to. And occasionally I would get to look at the code, the GitHub code that I was product managing for, mostly because I just wanted to see how things were actually working. And those were, I found those were the parts that I really enjoyed in the job was getting back to the code. And so I realized product management is a great job. People can do it and be really good at it. But I just don't think that it's something that I really can love and enjoy as much as I do enjoy software development. I think I can relate to that. It's like, I can't do both. And if I have to choose, I would choose coding any time of the day because that's where I feel creative. It's like if you're the product manager role is almost like you have to have somebody else do the work for you. You can only describe what you want, but you're not allowed to make it. Yeah. And that's actually a trap that I fell into was trying to go early on, trying to go too far onto the describing how to make it. And because that's where I was used to, you know, that's the part of the job I was good at was how do we do this? How do we architect the feature? And took a little bit of learning to realize that's no longer the product manager's job to dictate how it gets built. Mm. So, yeah. You're based in New Zealand, right? Yeah, that's right. At least for me in Norway, that is about as far on the other side of the earth as you can get, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it probably would be drill a hole in the, the earth. would probably come out pretty close to Norway. I think. So when you're working then with GitHub, you're totally different time zones. And how does that work out? I guess in personal life more than in work life. I mean, you have kids and yeah stuff that needs attention at hours, I guess. So GitHub was a remote company forever, I think probably since they were founded. Certainly, yeah, there's a very well-established remote culture. And I don't know the exact numbers, but 
let's say something like three quarters of the company or more was remote pre-COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. So they were already pretty well situated culturally for remote work. Yeah, I'm sure being in the office, sometimes there's things that you can only get actually being in the office, but they were pretty good for remote working. And the US, I was mostly working with people on the West Coast of the US and the West Coast to US, West Coast, New Zealand time zone varies from three hours to five hours, but New Zealand's a day ahead. So it's 10, 15 in the morning for me now, and it would be uh, 3.15 in the afternoon for Pacific time. So there was actually quite a lot of overlap, and I got up early in the morning, five or six in the morning, started work then, and finished work around eight hours or nine hours or so later. Sort of early afternoon, I would finish and be able to help with the kids and all of that stuff. It actually worked quite well for our stage of life with young kids because I was able to be around after school and things. Which is nice, yeah. I guess for people working in the same time zone, it's always a hassle trying to be in time for the kindergarten or from when the kids come from home from school or so. But I guess you solved that then. Yeah, yeah. Kind of just shifted my work hours right outside of that yeah. time. Did you sort of work with, uh, I mean, I guess you could say that you are Mr. Closurist together, right? I wouldn't say that. Well, my perception anyways is that there's a lot of people who are doing things in closures together, but I think to me, you are the sort of driving force behind it, I guess. And I listened to LVH on some podcast where he said that he was basically just the president, but you were the one doing all the work. He came in and signed some papers every once in a while. Yeah, I think he's being a little bit modest, but <laughs> yeah, I've been involved with closures together since it started, mm. and so I've certainly done a lot of work. Did you work with GitHub sponsors at all at GitHub? And yes, if so yes, was that sort of tied together with your closures together work in any way? It was definitely helpful. It was very helpful for my GitHub sponsors work because I had been on the other side of the table had experience with fiscal hosts. Closures Together was previously part of the Software Freedom Conservancy. That concept of a fiscal host is kind of unusual to some people. Could you explain that? Yeah. So if you want to accept money in probably any country in the world, most countries anyway, if you accept that money to your personal bank account, then you're probably liable for income tax on that money. In Again, in most countries, even if you were to pay that money out to somebody else, so if you're an open source software project and you collect donations personally and then you go and pay some other developer to do work on the open source project, you're probably still liable on the income tax for the money you received, even though you spent it out again, because mm -hmm. you're, in most cases, personal income tax, you can't deduct your sort of general expenses like that. I think the US is perhaps a little bit different in that regard, but most places you can't. And so what you would normally do is set up a company and the company would accept the funds and bank them and pay them out and they can offset their expenses from their income and pay taxes only on the, the income that wasn't offset by expenses, so the, the profit for the year. The problem with that is that setting up a company is quite a lot of work 
especially if you have a small software project and you're only earning, say, five or $10,000 a year or less, the cost of setting up a company, filing taxes, and all of that stuff could easily overwhelm both the time and the money involved that you're getting benefit from donations. And so fiscal hosts are a sort of middle ground where they say, you take your donations through us, we'll become your legal parent, and then they handle the taxes, or, well, they're usually non-profits, but they handle the filing with the IRS or you know whichever country's tax authority you're in. They handle legal and accounting and payments, and you pay, say, 10% or, or something similar of your total income to the fiscal host. Right. And you know, there's, there's trade-offs there because you get someone handling all of these tricky, annoying things that you don't really want to deal with. Downside is that you don't have so much control anymore because you are now under their legal umbrella. They're responsible for you. So you can't just do what you want with the money. If they're a US nonprofit, then they need to abide by the US nonprofit laws. And so there's certain things that you might want to do, but might be difficult if you're a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So having that understanding of what are the needs of fiscal hosts because we've worked so closely with why might people choose them? What is the sort of the relationship between the projects and the fiscal hosts? That was all very helpful for GitHub sponsors work. So closure is together. How did that really start? I seem to have heard that, well, my sort of impression of it was that Clojars got some funding at some point to do some maintenance and that you worked on Clojars for that maintenance. Is that correct? Pretty close. So Clojars got an offer of funding from somebody and this was quite a while ago and I can't remember which company it was, sorry. But the company that wanted to give this money you know, was happy to pay it wherever it needed to go. But Toby Crawley, who was the other admin and was the main admin and has been for a very long time, if he was to accept that money to his personal bank account, then you trigger this income tax problem. And so mm-hmm. he knew somebody on the board of the Software Freedom Conservancy. This was five or so years ago, perhaps. And the SFC was one of the only fiscal hosts, I think, we were aware of anyway. We knew someone on this board. And so we thought, all right, let's go with the SFC. I think we started just as, hey, can we put Clojars on you know, as a fiscal host so that we can have some legal protections and accept money through the funds. And then partway through that process, I got the, this was a while ago, so it's hard to attribute who said what, but you know, we, the, the collective group of people who were, you know, ended up being the closures together board members, we had this idea, let's turn this into a closure funding project. There was a existing project called Ruby Together that we were aware of at the time who does something very similar to Closures Together. They accept money from companies and they distribute it to open source software projects. And we said, hey, you know, Closure could do with something very similar. Why don't we do that? And I think that idea came in after we'd already started the process of joining the SFC and we emailed them and said, hey, we've got this new idea. What do you think? 
and they were they were happy enough to let us do that it was definitely wasn't the original thing that we came to them with but they were willing to experiment i don't remember when i joined but i do believe i joined quite early and i also it was just obvious for me to join and i think for a lot of other people as well because it seems like a really nice idea you could see even at that time that there was you know some people in the closure community who were extremely critical to the closure community and if we lost them if they burnt out and ran out of steam the closure community would be in a really bad spot and the other thing was that we could see that what has been created in the closure community a lot of it certainly not all but a lot of it was unpaid people just doing in their spare time and so we thought you know if we can actually pay people to work on this if we can buy people's time then imagine what we could see being done and i think what closures together has helped fund over the last three or four years kind of proved that out there's been a lot of projects that we've been able to fund and support and they've gone on to do really good things so yeah for me i mean Maybe unfair to sort of mention names, but I'm really happy that Bojidar has gotten his share and the work that the Strombag has done with Kalva has been really dear to me because he's been making the, the sort of onboarding of new closure programmers much easier with moving a lot of the stuff that we have inside or in Emacs over to VS Code, which is, I guess, the editor of preference these days. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of people using VS Code more and more, and it's it's pretty incredible, really, how quickly VS Code has become, I guess, number one. You know, probably not in total, but I think it's might be the most most used editor. I think that based on what recent stats I saw, I think it's yeah must be quite high. But you started out doing sort of, I would say, rather large and long sponsorships, right? It was a three-month period with money for that. Yeah. And you're changing that somehow now, right? Yeah. So we started off three-month sponsorships, initially $1,800 a month, and then up to $3,000 a month as we got more members. And so it started off at $1,800 a month for three months. And then as we got more members, we were able to up that to $3,000 a month. That was kind of about the limits of what we could do being part of the Software Freedom Conservancy because all of our agreements had to go through them, all of the payments had to go through them. And so there was sort of this double handling going on, which was just made it difficult. They were doing a great job, but it really wasn't they weren't well set up to do that kind of funding because typically in the other projects they have, there's a small set of people that get paid each time whenever they're getting paid. And we were saying, hey, I want you to pay these different people from all around the world every three months. So once we created the software, uh, the Closures Together Foundation, which is a 501c6 trade association in the US, we were able to be a little bit more nimble because we were responsible for the, we could do all of the contracts and all of the payments under our own steam. We didn't have to get anybody else to do that. And so we started off with the Summer of Bugs last year when we announced that. And so we, a bunch of small 
500 or $1,000 grants to projects that were doing smaller projects. So maybe they were fixing some bugs or writing some documentation or something kind of small. And that wasn't, they didn't want $9,000 over three months because as you said, like that's quite a large commitment really, both in terms of time and also the money that they're receiving. People sometimes feel sort of a sense of responsibility about what they need to do to sort of make use of that money. But also because it's so large, maybe they can't it can't fit in that time with their their day. So the first iteration of this was the Summer of Bugs, where we did smaller sets of funding. And then we, more recently this year, talked to our members and to open source software developers to see, hey, what would be a good structure for you? What do you need? Because we'd sort of, previously we'd set our funding structure based on kind of what was available to us really what the only thing that we could could do and so it was time to say let's actually look around at you know we were in new circumstances what really works for people and so there were a few things that we found from talking to people that we wanted to do one was more flexible funding so we were not always that great about giving people that much advance notice of the funding because of the timing of the surveys and then voting and then starting the next funding round, it was often pretty close between someone finding out they were going to get funded to when they would be starting to work on it. Right. And I can see that, I mean, if you have a day job and then suddenly, boom, you need to take three months off from that, that can be yeah, stressful, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we don't expect people to, to take three months work off full time, but even three months of part-time work at some level can definitely be challenging to fit in on short notice. Mm. So we had a couple of changes there. So one is that people have now two months from when they get notified that they've been selected to starting. So if they need to quest some time off or whatever it is they need to do in their life to make space, they can do that. The other thing is having different funding amounts. So rather than just having a single $9,000 grant, we now have one or $2,000 funding amounts along with $9,000. And so this makes it a little bit easier for smaller projects to apply because they might not have perhaps enough work or enough ideas to fill up $9,000, or it might just be sort of a risky project. And they say, well, I want to try something. I want to see what happens, but I don't want to sort of have this big burden of, well, if it fails, I've spent $9,000 of people's money on this project. And so we're now saying you can pick either a small funding amount or a larger funding amount, let you decide what works for you and what would be kind of the best structure. The other thing that we did at the same time was let people take that money over whatever time period they would like. So between one and 12 months, you'll be able to, if you get selected, you can say, I want to take this over that period of time. So for some people, they like legally can't even take the money if they're in the US on their work visa, but you know, they went back to Canada one month a year for a holiday. And so they said, well, you know, if you could give me that money in that single month when I'm back in Canada, then I can do it all then with no problem. People just have different things going on in their lives. They might want to do the work really intensely over a month, take a month off or have 
a certain time that really works well for them. Or they might say, actually, I want to just to do sustained work over 12 months, putting in, chipping away at some problem or maintenance or whatever the problem may be, but I don't have sort of three months or two months to put in a high amount of energy in a really short period of time. Yeah, because I could see how that would sort of fit my interests better. I'm very much a maintenance programmer, and uh-huh. I like to maintain things. I mean, I'm not like uh, Michael uh, Borkent, who seems to constantly come up with new stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? He's, yeah. he's quite creative, you might say. And so for him, it's like, hey, I got this new idea. Let's Let's get funded on that. But I'm... You know, I, I could see myself maintaining stuff forever and just fixing bugs coming in or cleaning up something or making something a little bit faster. But that's more at a much slower pace and for a longer time. Yeah. And it would fit my life better as well, because I think it would be hard towards both my family and towards my employer to say that, hey, now I'm going to be unavailable for three months doing whatever uh, was piquing my interest at the time. Right. Yeah. And another kind of funding program we heard from developers was that they really liked Cognitect's sponsorship of people. And I think you were one of the people Cognitect sponsored late last year or 2019, possibly even. Yeah, that was late last year. So that must have been December 2020. And it's kind of funny. We have at work, we have the security training and it's, it's a company called Ninjo. And basically what they're saying is that don't trust unsolicited emails. And here I was suddenly one, I think Friday afternoon or something. I got an email from Alex Miller, Cognitech saying, you know, Hey, would you mind setting up a GitHub sponsorship uh, <laughs> thing? Because we want to give you like the sponsorship for your work in the closure community. And it was, Fairly unsolicited and extremely unexpected. So it was almost like we report this and say that this has to be fraud somewhere. But getting that sponsorship was really the, I think, the biggest thing that ever happened in my uh, professional career. Wow. It is not so much, or it's almost not about the money at all. It's much more about the recognition. And that was an interesting aspect of it. It was. In that email, it was like, hey, set up a GitHub sponsorship page because we want to sponsor you. And it was nothing about why. So as you know, I do some maintenance work in sort of CLJ comments, which we can talk about later. But I was wondering, is it that or is it the two lines of code that I committed to Closure Core or is it the <laughs> box strings that I fixed in in Closure Script? I really had to sit down and search myself and figure out if I was worth this because what did I do Yeah, to deserve this? If you look at Bruce Howman, who basically transformed how you develop Java or ClojureScript frontends, or you look at Mike Fikes and David Nolan and these people, they, I mean, you can easily see what they did. And I don't think I compare very well with them. So that was my reaction to it. Anyways. Well, I think Cognitech's funding about 30 people, which is you know, a lot of people through mostly through GitHub sponsors and a couple through Patreon, where I think possibly GitHub sponsors wasn't available, unfortunately, for them in that location. Mm-hmm. We heard from people saying, hey, I really like this model from Cognitech, where they just give me money and there's no expectations. And I can understand that. And we thought, all right, well, how can we do this? And 
foreclosures together. And so we decided, yep, we're going to let our members vote on who should receive this funding. So we'll send out an email in, in fact, the next day or so, probably by the time this goes to air, it will have already been decided by the members, but we'll let members vote on the people that they think they would like us to fund for 12 months for $1,500 each month. And that will be sort of a, at least the start of us doing sort of long-term funding with less requirements, just saying, hey, you're doing great work. We just want to see you supported. And so you can keep doing the great work that you're already doing. Yeah, I guess another thing that was sort of make me feel a little bit more comfortable, and this feels really strange saying it, is if it was sort of with a timeline on it. Hmm. Okay. So, okay, I have this for a year. That's great and super. And then then it's somebody else's turn because some people arrive on the scene, they do some amazing work, and they definitely deserve to be sponsored. It's great for me to receive this money, but there's probably other people in the world who need it more than I do, right? Because... I have a steady job, I'm not a student, and I'm doing fine that way. But again, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm uh, not grateful because I am, but I wish other people could feel as grateful, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Cognitech's done, done a pretty big, been extremely generous in what they've been giving money to. I don't think they've announced yeah. anything publicly, but I think the closure community should be aware. Yeah, Cognitech's been you know, supporting a lot of people in a big way. So what about you? You work at a company called Ardoc, which does, mm -hmm. well, I'm going to be honest. I looked at what Ardoc does. It's an enterprise architecture platform, digital transformation, application portfolios. I can see a lot of words here. I kind of get the general, but what specifically, what is the thing that I use when I'm using Ardoc? So I think that a metaphor could be in place. So if you dive into a code base that you do not know much about, you might start documenting it. So you can pull out an Excel sheet and you could say that, oh, this namespace has so many lines, that namespace has so many lines and so on. So you could say something about the size of things. And you could say that, well, then it's, of course, you can say that, oh, this namespace depends on that namespace. And for some reason, you can say that this namespace is super valuable, whereas that namespace is not so valuable because it doesn't do anything anymore. Right. So if you want to sort of look at what kind of areas of the code you want to work at, you can figure out all this data and you can probably manage to do this in Excel. We would program it. So you would say that you'd put this in a database and then you could ask questions to it. You can say that, hey, this, this namespace here is high risk because it's got a lot of code and it's got no tests, but it's super valuable. So we start improving this thing and this thing over here doesn't provide any value anymore. But uh -huh. so this is what you do for your source code. But Ardoc does that for the IT landscape of a company. So you can have a database at the bottom, which is connected to some applications. And these applications, they port some business capabilities. And that way you can see that if the database goes down, then you can see that, oh, the shopping cart doesn't work anymore or something like that. So you can do some sort of risk management because you want to then probably have a replica on the database. And you can also start to see that, hey, these applications that we have over here, they don't support any business capabilities that we are interested in anymore. So you can discontinue them and so on. So basically helping enterprise architects document and also analyze their application portfolios and such. Yeah. 
Gotcha. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah. So it's not something necessarily that an individual software developer might use. No, but, no. Okay. So it's more for the larger enterprises where you have price architect positions. And sort of in our community, Michael Nygaard is one such enterprise architect, which is interesting. And if you haven't listened to his episodes that Gene Kim has with him, they're really good in the ideal cast, I think it's called. And so how long have you been with Adoc for? Uh, coming up on four years now. So that is quite some time. Cool. And how long is, was Closure there from the start? Or was that something you brought in yourself? Or? No, that was there from the start. So Eric Buckstad, another Eric, is one of the founders. And when they founded Ardoc in 2013, that was sort of, I guess, a bet he made on like the promise of Clojure being a language that was quicker to develop in and also that it would self-select for better developers under sort of the assumption that people that bothered to teach themselves Clojure or were interested in learning it would be better developers than the ones that say, hey, I just work in Java at the time. And I think that we've seen that at Ardoc that the signal to noise ratio on applicants to job offers that we have is much higher on the closure side than what it is on the front end, which is JavaScript. And I can see that you're hiring right now for a closure developer at Adoc. Yep. Excellent. We're opening more and more to sort of remote remote, but we prefer Norwegian remote. And the reason is to be able to sort of, I guess it's a, one is a time zone thing that we talked about, but it's also the ability to sort of fly into the office or to meet at the office when that is yeah. required. Okay. What about if someone was in like Sweden or Finland or Denmark? We have one programmer, a closure, or at least a front ender who's sort of transitioning into uh, to closure who lives in Edinburgh and he, he works from there. So that's yeah. remote, remote. We have a team lead who lives in Serbia. And we have at least, all right, yeah, a guy that works from uh, Poland. So we're sort of remote, but we prefer local remote, if you will. I think it's great when companies are clear about what they want rather than sort of mm. being the sort of wishy-washy, uh, yeah, we sort of do remote anywhere. But then when you actually talk to them, it's actually, well, yeah, it's really only remote in you know, yeah. EU or West EU, which is fine. Just be clear about what you want. We've also had, I would say, fairly good success in importing people from the US. We have some really smart people that came over. I guess we could say various reasons that might not be that valid anymore, but (laughs) with a change of president and stuff. Yeah. But Norway is a great country to work in. And Ardok is a really nice company to work in as well. And saying that because I think we have a fairly nice work-life balance Mm -hmm. and I worked in Sweden. I worked in France. And at least compared to Sweden, I think Norway is a lot nicer. It's as simple as in Sweden, you have eight hours of workday and you have one hour of lunch, which has to be in there. So basically you're nine hours at work. Mm -hmm. In Norway, you normally have 37 and a half hours. So that's seven and a half hours with half an hour lunch. Mm -hmm. So sometimes lunch is included. So then you only work seven and a half hours a day, which is quite nice. That's that gives you time to both deliver and pick up in the kindergarten. Yeah, yeah. And in your open source work, you've been working on Clojure Data JSON recently. 
Yeah, that was. So how did that come about? I think the reason for that was that we started looking at libraries in our backend code, which had CVEs on them. So which had security and vulnerabilities on them. And Jackson tends to come up there. And Jackson is a library for parsing JSON. And it is also rumored to be, I haven't quite experienced it, but it's uh, somewhat rumored to be difficult in terms of different versions working together. And yeah, there are quite a few libraries which depend on JSON, uh, Jackson, and uh, that can be a nightmare. Data JSON is a pure closure implementation of a JSON parser. And as such, you avoid all the problems with Jackson and other third-party libraries. Problem with Closure Data JSON at the time was that it was quite a bit slower than the other offerings like JSONista from Matosin and also Cheshire because they're Jackson-based. So sort of looking for a side project and I reached out to Alex Miller at Cognitect and I said, well, if I sort of forked Data JSON and started making my own JSON library, is that okay or is that not something that you would do. And he said, well, why would you want to do that? And I said, well, I wanted to look and see if it could be made faster. And then he said, why don't you do it? Closure data JSON instead. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I said, okay. But it was really fun. I spent a lot of time on my own just trying to optimize it and sort of breaking every rule of optimization out there. Uh And especially the first one, which for me is that you always have to profile. You have to figure out for any sort of non-trivial code, you won't be able to guess where the bottlenecks are and where the time is spent. Right. And I spent quite a bit of time optimizing the stuff that was no need to optimize. But that was sort of before I started working seriously with it in sort of terms of contributing back. The tools that I used there was, I don't remember his name, but it's the website uh, Closure Goes Fast, I think. We should leave a uh, note in the, the CLJ async profiler. Alexander Yakushev. Yes, exactly. Who incidentally studied in Norway, if I'm not mistaken. Ah. Yeah, he worked on Oxcart or something. It was getting closure on Android and getting it fast there, I think. I remember yeah. that. Yeah, and Skumit, which is uh, some another part of that. But anyways, using that was very important. And also, of course, using Criterium to see that my changes actually made things go faster. But working with Alex was, it was extremely helpful, but also very frustrating because Alex was giving me the, um, I guess, the Rich Hickey treatment, which is you have to state your problem clearly. And then you have to enumerate several possible solutions. Then you have to enumerate their trade-offs. And once you've done that, then you can implement something and you can sort of prove that the solution that you did was better. And I sort of see this in how Cognitech stewards closure as well, right? The burden is on the, if you want to have some improvement into closure, say that you wanted the set functions in closure set to only accept sets and not whatever collection you threw at it. You really have to make a good argument for that. You have to sort of, that is not a solution to a problem or that is a solution to the problem. That is not the problem. So what is the problem? 
And the problem in that case is that if you pass a set or if you pass a non-set to some of the set functions in closure set, you get weird results. And then that could be seen as a problem statement. But then you can say that, okay, we can solve this in different ways, right? We can put specs on those uh, functions so that you can run your tests with instrumentation, or we could do this, or we could do that. There's like a ton of possible solutions and they all have their trade-offs. But being forced to sort of enumerate or to state the problem, enumerate the trade-offs and the solutions is somewhat frustrating when you sort of thought that you knew exactly what you needed to solve. It's like, hey, I have this hammer and that looks like a nail. But it's been extremely, I've learned a lot from that. And having Alex there was super important to make this work. And it made me work in a very disciplined way, which was good. It was frustrating, but very good. Interesting. And so you've worked on performance. Where does Closure Data JSON's performance sit compared to similar JSON passing libraries? So Matosin, Tommy Matosin, they put up a graph where they benchmark all the libraries at the JSONista GitHub repo. Mm -hmm. And you can see there that I think for writing JSON, Closure Data JSON is still a bit slower than the rest. But for reading JSON, parsing JSON, it is as fast or faster as Cheshire on small payloads. And then it sort of, I guess, gets worse than Cheshire when the payloads get really big. Gotcha. So for web development, for example, I think that I saw some papers saying that the normal JSON payload is about, oh, I'm really bad at this, but closure data JSON is favorable to, for example, Cheshire. But it's now much closer than historically was. Yeah, yeah. Cool. That is that is really cool. I'm I'm happy to see closure data JSON getting faster, and yeah, if we, you can uh, yeah comfortably pick it for a lot of things now where maybe you wouldn't previously. But there was a downside to this as well, right? Because I did introduce some bugs, and so Ardoc is a SaaS business, right? So yeah. we have we run all the code, and we can monitor the logs. We can fix stuff. On the fly, right? You don't have to stop servers. Uh, it's rolling deploys. Everything is automated yep. like it should be. But when you work on a library, you actually produce an artifact that people use. So people can unbeknowingly be using your buggy code. And you have to ask them to upgrade to your newer version, which doesn't have the bugs. And there are different kinds of bugs as well, right? There is closure data JSON could be saying that I can't parse this where you feed it some valid JSON. That is sort of sad, but we can live with that mm-hmm. because it will blow up. Whereas the one bug that was really hard for me to discover was that I had a data loss bug in it. Ouch. Yeah, ouch. And this is one of sort of the peculiarities of closure is that working with persistent data structures, they're great, but they are sometimes slow. And when you want to make things go faster, you use what we call transients. You get a mutable data structure, which you can then turn into a uh, persistent data structure when you're done putting stuff into it. And the catch there is that even though the operations on the transient data structures, even though You can observe the changes on the var or on the thing that holds the the transient. 
you should always work with the return value from the thing that's updating just as if you were doing it on a um, normal persistent data, data structure. And But if you do like um, a source bang on a transient map and you look at the transient map, you will see that the value is there, right? Uh, you don't have to look at the return value from a source bang. But the problem is that with maps underneath the hood, Closure changes the implementation from a from one type of map to another type of map when we get to eight entries in the map. So the Associbang works until eight, then it doesn't work anymore because then it's working on another map which you don't have a reference to. So that was my big mistake, which I knew about, but it just fell through. And it doesn't show up on your small little tests, right? Because if you work with a map with less than eight things in it, then you're good. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. And I see you added a generative test here to yep. Pleasure Data JSON. Yep. That's a kind of cool thing because you can sort of describe the grammar of JSON in spec fairly trivially. And then you have a generative test. And I think that namespace is like 20 lines of code, maybe? Yeah, it's, it's not very much at all. So you can generate, I use the specs to generate closure data structures, and then I serialize them, and then I read them, and then I check that the resulting data structure is the same, which is an area where generative testing really shines, right? Because you have, you have functions that are uh, inverses, I guess you can call them, of each other. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, that was sort of the quick run-through of data JSON, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I think everyone will be very appreciative of the, the work you've done there to speed that up and mm. just make everyone's lives a little bit more performant uh, without having to do anything. Yeah. And the other open source work that you've been doing for the last few years is with CLJ Commons. So do you want to tell us what is that and what are you doing with it? Yeah. So I guess CLJ Commons is a name that I think you coined. So I could argue that you and I, we have somewhat different opinions about what it is, but I hope that my opinion of it sort of fits inside of, of your vision of it. <laughs> and the stuff that I've been doing for CLJ Commons has been to provide a place for closure libraries where the maintainers have moved on to other things. Like some people don't program closure anymore. Some people are not interested in maintaining their libs anymore some libs still need maintenance. Right. And what we saw was that we were getting this proliferation of forks of valuable libraries. And it was hard for people then to choose, oh, should I use this fork or that fork? Because this fork has that bug face and this other fork has that feature I need and so on. So that was to, my goal was sort of to avoid that fragmentation and set up a place where people over time could help maintain these libs that they're basically done, but they're still valuable and they still need some love and care. Over time, that has built up quite a number of important closure libraries, which would have otherwise kind of just sort of sat idle and over time bit rotted. Yeah. It's very important work. It is not a thing that takes a lot of my time, right? Because there's... Uh, Recent, Zach Tellman recently sort of uh, donated, if you will, the whole of Manifold and uh, Aleph and Byte Streams and Byte Transformation. But luckily for me, there is a community of Clojure developers who are actively working on that. That ecosystem is 
quite challenging to sort of take on unless you really dive into it and understand what you're doing. And again, this is infrastructure that a lot of people depend upon, and it would be messing up a web server is not something you want to do pretty so often. <laughs> no, no. So you create releases, do maintenance, keep things kind of fresh. Yeah. One of the things that I'm happy with that I did was that creating releases was somewhat a chore. I decided that I wanted to sign the artifacts, especially when we're deploying with Lining in, because that's sort of what Lining in wants you to do. Mm -hmm. So I have a machine with PGP set up on it, and I had to be on that machine to deploy, and then I need to have the correct Java versions installed and so on and so forth. So I built a little bit of infrastructure so that we deploy directly from CircleCI to Clojars when you push a release tag, which is quite nice. Then we know that uh, stuff is built on CircleCI and not on my machine, and anyone who has access to pushing tags can do that. That is very cool and means that it's not tied. You know, you can give someone the ability to push tags without giving them your GPG key necessarily. Exactly, yeah. Setting all that up was quite a challenge, especially with this PGP stuff, but it worked in the end. Yeah, I'm looking at the Circle CI. It looks simple, but I imagine figuring out exactly the combination of things to, to put in there took a little while, I imagine. The thing that was the hardest was managing to produce a key, I guess, that I could use to sign things with. So the PGP stuff was the hardest thing. And then, of course, getting all the white space in the YAML to work at the end was also rather frustrating. I've wrestled with GPG. I've got a new laptop recently and haven't. I feel like every time every time I get a new laptop, I set it up and have to relearn how it all works. It doesn't happen that often. But yeah, I know it's a challenge. So thank you for doing that work. It is how we produce artifacts at work, right? We don't build stuff on our own computers. So we shouldn't be any worse in open source, right? So you can say that this artifact came from that build on Circle. So it shouldn't contain any malware from my computer. Cool. One thing to close that original discussion about work. So I recently left GitHub. I decided it's a great place, but I want to go back to doing software development. So I'm taking a little bit of time off and then I will be starting to look for work again in a month or a couple of months. So yeah, that's, and definitely doing software development, hopefully doing closure. We'll see what kind of shows up and what's out there. Um, but that is the kind of most recent update to what I've been up to. I hear there's a bank in Brazil that uh, <laughs> is in <laughs> looking for closure people. Yeah, I think they'll slurp up just about anyone they can. <laughs> Sorry, not a, not in a, a like they'll accept just anyone, but I know they are hiring voraciously for closure developers. Mm. Yep, uh, new bank. I'm not sure what the the remote working situation would be for that, but yeah. Definitely some interesting companies around. And I guess uh, Norway is a little bit off because it's uh, one o'clock in the morning right now and you're sort of at the prime of your working hours. Yes, I didn't realize it was quite that late for you when you booked this time. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I chose that myself. Okay. All right. Well, I would better let you get back to bed. Thank you so much for talking. This was a pleasure. It's been great working with you on CLJ Commons and everywhere else, our paths. Cross and 
congratulations on the the cognitech funding and yeah i will see you around online thank you for having me it's been a pleasure